upon marking number 701. We'll certainly use that later in the lesson if it, if it be the will of God. And we're thankful, as was mentioned already, for the privilege this hour is to assemble on this lovely first day of the week afternoon and do so in a way that we're certain from the teaching of the Word of God is pleasing to our Master and certainly edifying and upbuilding to you and to me. As you probably remember, last Sunday evening we began a series of lessons based upon, as you can see in the title, the Jordan River, and in particular reflections for, with respect to the Jordan River. And as you can see, we're going to step forward tonight just a little bit more than what we did then. This particular series will continue not only tonight but also next week. So if you look with me at this slide... A part of it is a bit of a, of a reminder. Last Sunday night, as we began to focus on the Jordan River, we found that there were some remarkable events, biblically, that took place at that location. And as far as the importance of the Jordan River, it has nothing to do with many of the features that make other rivers on earth rather significant. The Jordan is not significant because of the size. There are a lot larger rivers than that. It's not significant because of the amount of volume of water it carries. It is not even in the top hundred of the rivers on earth as far as its actual volume of water it carries. The Jordan is not significant because of the size of the cities that may be on its banks. Nothing, nothing like that. What makes the Jordan River so significant? To those that love the Word of God are the series of events, biblically, both Old and New Testament, that took place either in it or near it. And as we began to look at that last Sunday evening, we cast a spotlight on the lessons you can see there. I've asked you to appreciate this fact. As you and I looked at those events, we noticed the children of Israel crossed the Jordan River as they entered from east to west into the Promised Land. And they did so at flood stage. But wasn't that a reminder to them and to us, things are possible with God. And there are things only God can do. And that's true not only for the ancient people of Israel, but it's also, of course, true today as well. But then we also extended that lesson, as you can see finally, and appreciated a bit about things that part. Wasn't it true that when Elijah again left the scenes of this earth, Elisha happened to be in the vicinity, but that took place at the Jordan River, 2 Kings chapter 2 tells us. And as we reflected slightly upon that, we use that to motivate ourselves coming even to the lesson tonight. It is with that said that tonight we're going to already begin to look at some things in the New Testament, but we'll precede that with one more Old Testament reference. In the fifth chapter of 2 Kings, there's an event there that likely has already come to your mind, and it's the one that will be the opening slide as we come to the next reference. The mere mention of the name Naaman brings to our mind the thought of this Syrian captain. And as the text informs us in verses 1 and 2 of 2 Kings 5, he was not only a Syrian captain, but he was a very influential person. He was a highly respected individual, and yet he was a leper. Now, leprosy, as you and I know, especially from Leviticus chapters 13 and 14, was a very serious malady, disease. And so it was that Naaman unfortunately had this. 
there was a little Israelite maiden who had been captured, kidnapped, if you please, and she, quite frankly, informed Naaman's wife, if only Naaman was in the presence of the prophet in Israel, he would cure him, he would heal him of this malady. Upon hearing that information, word ultimately was brought to Naaman and ultimately brought before the actual Syrian king who made arrangements such that Naaman could be brought before the Israelite prophet. But you and I well remember what happened. When Naaman, with all of his military entourage and all of those respected and distinguished individuals that accompanied him, he came to the house of Elisha. And Elisha didn't even come out to meet him. He sent a messenger who gave these instructions. You tell him to go and dip seven times in the Jordan River. Notice the specificity. Not just any river, but the Jordan. And he will be cleansed. But not only that, his flesh will return to him. And so it was upon that slide. Two things of great interest to appreciate. As I ask you to note those things, isn't it true that Naaman at first was exceedingly angry? In fact, the text says he was wroth and he left in a rage. After all, he was too distinguished to be treated like this. He was too noble to simply be given these instructions from a distance. He demanded, you see, in his own way of thinking, that at least he ought to have come out and waved his hand over me. At least he should have come and made some official pronouncement. But that was not to be. After he left in a rage, his servants reasoned with him enough, Look, what he's asked you to do isn't difficult or hard. And had he asked some great thing, you would have done it. Why not do this? I'm paraphrasing part of Second Kings 5. Of course, Naaman did so, ultimately. And he dipped in the Jordan River. And he was cleansed upon dipping the seven times. As you close that slide with me, could I at least ask all of us to appreciate the timeless event that happened at that scene at the Jordan will in fact provide a basis for our movement into the lessons that are shortly to come. And speaking of them, look at this one. I just mentioned Naaman. What about now John the Baptist? And shortly, a moment ago, John read in our hearing from Matthew chapter 3, but he read from the last few verses of the chapter. Step back up to the opening verses of that chapter and let's devote a few moments to reflecting on John the Baptist and the scene of his labors and what took place there and then. It is no wonder, as you can see on that slide, John the Baptist, it would seem to me, is probably one of the most overlooked biblical characters. We think so much about Jesus and for, for good reason. And we think so much of the apostles for good reason. But if we aren't careful, we might be tempted to give lesser appreciation to John the Baptist when in fact Jesus said, Among those born of women there hath not been a greater than John. And yet the one who is least in the kingdom is greater than he. Matthew 11 verse 11. So there's no doubt from the lips of Jesus, John in many ways had greatness attached to him. The Old Testament had foreshadowed, he had foretold the coming of John. Just as surely as it spoke about the coming of the Messiah, the Old Testament also specified the coming of the one who would prepare the way for the Messiah. Isaiah 40 verses 1 to 8. 
in fact, will detail that beautifully in many ways. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. John applied that to himself and Jesus applied it to him as well. Isn't it remarkable then that the Old Testament, Isaiah was written roughly 750 B.C., seven and a half centuries before John was born, the Old Testament predicted he was going to come as well. Malachi 3 verses 1 and 2 is even more dramatic, speaking about this one who would come in the power of Elijah, and when he did, suddenly the anointed one, the Messiah, would come, and so it was. Jesus was only six months younger than John. Isn't that amazing? Surely in that connection, in that light, we're prepared then to note John 1.29. It would seem to me fair to make this observation, this assessment, just as surely as Elijah directed attention to the God of heaven. And Elijah did that masterfully, didn't he? In the midst of so many who had turned their attention to Baal, and in fact, even King Ahab with his wife Jezebel made a lot of problems for Elijah. But Elijah directed people's hearts and minds to the God of heaven, and just as surely... John the Baptist is the Elijah that was to come, and he directed people to the only Lord and Savior. John said it so well in John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. What a beautiful anthem spoken from the lips of John. Surely in that connection, you and I begin to notice what's next. Many of the labors of John were directly attached to the following location. May I invite you to notice as I read, beginning in Matthew 3. It says, beginning in verse number 5, Then went out to him, that's John the Baptist, Jerusalem and all Judea, and all the region round about Jordan, there's our word, and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. John's labors, you see, were in that rather remote region right near the Jordan River, but on its western side. It is in that connection that you'll notice about the middle of that slide. This is a remarkable thing. As we close the Old Testament through the Minor Prophets, very little is said about the Jordan River. We knew it was there, and we appreciated every now and then some connected reference to it, but it's really relatively seldom. But suddenly, as the New Testament opens, we find this preparer of the way of the Christ who is laboring near the Jordan. And the text says that many, many people went out to Him. And could I invite you to note verse 6? They were baptized by John in Jordan. There are many things one might could do with water. But the one thing for which John was known as it connected to the Jordan River, was the practice of baptism, the practice of immersion. And no doubt that information, that wording, that particular activity was soon known far and wide. Can you just imagine the town folk in Jerusalem? Do you know what that guy out there at the Jordan's doing? He's dunking people. He's immersing people. And there's a discussion as he does this in connection to repentance. There's a discussion in connection to the confession of sin. We just hadn't heard anything like this. Even Elijah didn't preach anything like that. Neither did Elisha, neither did any of the other Old Testament prophets. 
May I suggest to you here was something new in connection to the Jordan River. But as you can see near the bottom of that slide, as John labored at this place, it is John the Apostle who adds an interesting observation. You see, John selected a place. You might want to look at John 3, verse 23. And note the specific statement that is there made. John 3, verse 23. It says, And John, this is John the Baptist, also was baptizing in Enon near to Salem. Now we know exactly where along the Jordan that John was involving himself in these efforts, but now the text gives us this information. Because there was much water there, and they came and were baptized. Where John was baptizing, there was a lot of water. We noticed last Sunday evening that due to the elevation, movement of the waters of the Jordan, there are times when it has a rather rapid rate, but there are times it's very shallow. And certain times of the year, of course, that would be far more often than at others. But where John was baptizing, there was a great deal of water. You and I are going to pause at just a moment and appreciate this. What a high compliment the Master paid to John. Again, among those born of women, there isn't a greater than John, but the one least in the kingdom, greater than he. Later on, we read in John 5.35, John was a burning and a shining light. Have you ever been compared to a burning and a shining light? One who radiates the way of those about him or her? One who shows the way to truth and rightness and piety? The one who is not obliterated or covered or concealed by way of things that detract from truth? John's diet was unusual. His clothing was unusual. He was a man who got directly to the point. John didn't, read, didn't beat around the bush with you. He directly pointed out the features. You remember what happened to him surrounding his death. He had the gumption, the backbone, and the courage to tell a ruler, that woman, you're not allowed to have her. She's another man's wife. And for that, ultimately, he lost his head. That took courage. It took conviction in regard to the things written by way of the Word of God, Matthew 14, verses 1 to 3. As our discussion continues, John baptized, as we just read in John 3, near to Salem, because much water was there. Let's pause for an observation. There has been a great deal of discussion throughout the ages about the particulars of baptism. And I would suggest to you that in part man's mind has often been taken in directions that aren't consistent with the Word of God. If you and I would wish to know what baptism is, really all that has to be done is take every verse and passage that describes it, make a collation of those things, and the passages will speak for themselves. Is sprinkling baptism? Can you pour water on someone and claim that they were baptized? Can you con consider a figurative version of baptism? On and on the questions might go. But you'll notice that John and many other passages harmonize with it. John baptized where there was, wa where there was much water. Baptism requires a lot of water. A cup full will not do it. 
a few drops will not suffice. Isn't it interesting in Acts chapter 8 that when Philip and the eunuch, when the eunuch said, here's water, what does hinder me to be baptized? Don't you find it interesting? The text says both of them went down into the water. Acts 8 verses 26 to 39. They both went down into it. Why? Because that's what baptism is. One individual burying another one beneath the surface of water. It can't be done with a few drops, a few cups, or even a few quarts. Isn't it interesting that we at least begin to learn the Jordan River is going to be a key matter as it teaches us lessons about cleansing. That's what had happened to Naaman. He was to be cleansed there. You're cleansing in mind. Not from leprosy, but from sin, will ultimately be at least a matter of discussion as we reflect upon what took place at the Jordan. Next on that slide, look at a few things then that were connected to what John taught in relation to that baptism. In Mark 1, verse number 4, repentance of sins. Now, you and I know today that when we give thought to the nature of New Testament baptism, we too have a keen interest in the consideration of repentance of sins. Wasn't it true that Peter proclaimed by inspiration, when they cried out, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter didn't just say, Be baptized. He said, Repent and be baptized. Those on Pentecost were required to repent. Any person today submissive to the will of God will also happily and wonderfully submit to that same commandment. Jesus said, Nay, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish, Luke 13, 3. And do we not read in Acts 17, verses 30 and 31, The times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. That's inclusive of every one. Every individual who is descended from Adam must then repent in order to appreciate the command and the obedience to the things God has taught. Not only that, notice the element in confession. I've asked you to appreciate Matthew 3, verse number 6. We noted that a moment earlier in the lesson this evening, but it says, "...and were baptized of Him in Jordan, confessing their sins." I mentioned it previously how word about John must have been the talk of the place. Do you know what that guy eats? Do you know how he dresses? Have you heard the message he's preaching? None of our Pharisee friends talk like this. None of our Sadducee friends talk like this. He insists that we need to repent. And he demands that we confess our sins. Today, you and I know, too, that we're required to confess our errors. In 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins. Did you note the little word, if? If you and I refuse to confess our sins, then, too, what does that say about His willingness to forgive them? If you and I so love our sin and are unwilling to confess the error connected with it, then our heart is not to the point of repentance. Surely in that light, two final things on this slide. 
we've cast a bit of a spotlight on the baptism of John. And as great as it was, it was not intended by God to be permanent. It was not intended to be age-lasting, if you please. We know that because the time came in Acts chapter 19 where there were some individuals in Ephesus. And when Paul came, they said, we know only the baptism of John. They were promptly rebaptized, or perhaps I should say baptized in the name of the Lord. It is the case today that you and I cannot be baptized by way of the baptism of John because that has passed into history. It is not available today. John isn't alive to administer it. One helpful matter to keep in mind is the baptisms mentioned in the Bible are such that there is an administrator. John was the administrator of that baptism, but John is dead. Nobody can be baptized with his baptism today. But doesn't it prepare us to give reflection to this next slide, which does take us to this baptism? I'm going to put a two-pronged approach to this discussion, one of which takes us back to the lesson text in Matthew chapter 3, but which promotes us to give some thought to our own baptism. Revisit the scene with me of the closing verses of Matthew chapter 3. Then cometh Jesus from Galilee, this is verse 13, to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. I mentioned earlier that many people in the Jerusalem area and the Judean area went out to John to be baptized of him. And yet one of the individuals that came, according to verse 13, was none other than a man named Jesus. Jesus too, the text says, came out of Galilee... He came to the Jordan River. He came to this very riverside that you and I have mentioned already, but He came with a purpose. It was not the same purpose expressly in every regard of those others, for note the next verse. He came to be baptized of Him. Indeed, verse number 13. But something rather amazing happened. Have you ever seen a preacher refuse to baptize someone who earnestly wanted it? Have you ever seen a preacher or an elder refuse to make approval of baptism? And yet the text says, But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? John knew who Jesus was. That's easy enough to appreciate. Even though they may not have seen one another for some time, that doesn't change the fact Every time that John had opportunity, it seems as though he was well aware of who the Master was. John even had said, I'm not worthy to stoop down and, and, and loose your, your shoes. John recognized how much greater Jesus was. He knew that he himself was only the voice of one crying in the wilderness, the one preparing the way, but the actual Messiah was, of course, someone else. It was Jesus. It is true in that light that that next statement occurs. You can perhaps imagine that as Jesus appeared on this occasion and came to be baptized, John initially was reluctant. He was resistant to it. But verse 15 now tells us the following. 
Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it to be so now. For thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him. Do you note with me that John didn't insist on any repentance of sins on the part of Jesus, though he did insist that in the lives of the others who had come. When they came, you may remember that the soldiers and the Pharisees and others, John in many cases was very direct with them. You may recall on one occasion that some of the Pharisee character said, in terms of their own lineage, we are the descendants of Abraham as if they didn't need to do anything John had told them. And in reply, John said, God's able of these rocks, these stones to raise up children to Abraham. That wasn't anything exclusive or special in light of the new dispensation that was coming. They needed to hear the word of the Lord spoken in this occasion through the matter of John. May I suggest perhaps one final passage before we leave almost completely the discussion of John's baptism and focus on this one. It is found in Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. In verses 29 and 30 of that chapter, we encounter the following. It says, And all the people that heard him and the publicans justified God being baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the counsel of God against themselves being not baptized of him. The reflection upon that passage to you and to me loudly shouts this, Did God expect people in that day and time to be baptized with the, with the baptism of John? We've learned that John was baptizing there in the Judean wilderness, there at the Jordan River, and a lot of people went out to him. Did God expect that all who heard him would? Look back to verse 30 of what we just read. The Pharisees and lawyers rejected the counsel of God. May I ask, how did they reject God's counsel? Was it His method of love? Was it His discussion of the Old Testament books and the, can the canonicity of them? That wasn't the point. It says they rejected the counsel of God because they weren't baptized by John. The answer is yes. God expected that they would be baptized with the baptism of John in that day and time. And to not do so was to reject God's counsel. To not do so was to turn one's back upon the will and the character of what God had revealed. With that significance attached to the baptism administered by John, let's go back to this slide and note this. We now find that John had been reluctant to baptize Jesus. I have need to be baptized of you, John said. Jesus replied in verse 15, Suffer it to be sold now. For thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. It was a gigantic statement in righteousness what Jesus asked John to do to him. Might you and I pause as we close that slide like this. Here we have a remarkable event. Nothing ever at the Jordan had happened prior to this like what we're now studying. We know that because of what's about to happen. 
on this next slide, I've tried to tally some of it. Notice Jesus made no confession of sin, for He didn't have any. Hebrews 4.15 shouts loudly that you and I have a high priest that was tempted at all points like as we are yet without sin. He was godless. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 and following tells us. It is such that he had no sin to confess. No wonder John didn't ask him to confess any sin. No wonder John didn't ask him to repent of any sins. He didn't have anything to repent of. But you'll notice on that slide, they did go down into the water. And John did baptize him. And when he did so, what then did we do we next encounter? Please allow your imagination to wander back to that scene. What if you had been standing on the banks witnessing the events of John's baptism of Jesus? Would you not have seen something like this? John saw a dove descend out of heaven and light on the Lord. But not only that, he heard a voice out of heaven. A voice that said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. To have been present and witness that kind of transforming event, that kind of momentous and colossal activity, it is, with that said, we can make a few observations. Things which I hope would be meaningful and beneficial to us today. We've just studied for a few moments about the Lord's actual baptism. That is to say, when John baptized him. But you'll notice it was to fulfill all righteousness. Notice something else. There was no show involved in it. There are times when you'll hear discussion as it connects to baptism and a picture is painted as if it is a bit of a, a show. It is a bit of a matter, you see, the fullness of which is not intricately connected to it. Many will tell you baptism had nothing to do with my salvation. They'll tell you that. They'll say, I was saved before I was baptized. They were wrong about that. Bible doesn't teach that anywhere. But yet you notice even in the example of John's baptism of Jesus, there wasn't any show involved in this. It was serious. It was earnest. There was a great meaning connected to it. But not only that. 1 Peter 3.21 tells to you and I for today, the like figure Wherein to even baptism doth also now save us. You and I, you see, are invited to appreciate baptism just as strongly. There's no show in it either. This baptism of Jesus involved immersion just as baptism will today. We're told in Ephesians 4 verse 5, there is one baptism... Only one. There's but one baptism, effective and active and effectual today for the remission and forgiveness of sins. It's the one that we heard the Master teach about. Did He not say in Mark 16, 16, I'll begin in verse 15, But go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. And so that one baptism, the one that you and I have just studied and read about, the one that we saw included immersion, it was not administered by John, it is administered by Jesus. 
And this baptism leads me to note this. It involves righteousness. That's what the Lord said of the one John did unto him. Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. When you and I are baptized today for the remission of sins, it too is an element connected to righteousness. May I invite you to notice the words in Acts 2.38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Why? For the remission of sins. A person isn't baptized today as a show, as a presentation of membership, if you please, in the church. That is a wonderful consequence of it. But it's for the remission of sins. As the Word of God teaches that basic consideration, next on that slide is this. The wonderful approval of heaven. You notice that heaven shined brightly on the Master. This is my beloved Son, God said. Today, when a person is scripturally baptized, oh, how heaven's approval is showered. We know that because of the words of Galatians 3. Note with me verses 26 and 27. You're all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Heaven's approval, absolutely. You and I are wrapped in Christ. We are in Christ when we're scripturally baptized. Isn't that beautiful? The sense of that is truly fantastic. Perhaps two more things. Doesn't it come to our mind when we reflect upon what was told to Saul by Ananias? In Acts chapter 22, from the words of Saul himself, by that time he was Paul. But he recounted his own baptism. As he thought back to the day that that event occurred, and he, sh he shared with others what was said to him, he said, Ananias told me, Why tarryest thou arise and be baptized, and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord? Saul's sins were washed away at that moment of his baptism, not before. Despite the fact that he had spent three days fasting, three days in penitence, three days beside himself in wonderment, when that light shined about him on that road to Damascus, here was a man who spoke to the risen Lord. And Jesus said, It's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. Acts 9, verses 4 and 5. Saul was so overwhelmed, he said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Jesus said, Go into the city. It'll be told thee what thou must do. What was said was going to be required. And Ananias came to him and quoted the words I mentioned a moment ago. Why are you waiting, Saul? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins. May we never look past the remarkable beauty connected to baptism. That person going into the water is not like the one that comes out of it. The one going in is shrouded in sin. The one coming out has none. The one going in is not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. The one coming out is. The one going in has the old man of sin that's, though dead, now about to be buried. The one coming out is a new creature in Christ. The one going in 
has had different priorities and features connected to life. The one coming out has but one mission, to be a faithful servant to the Lord Jesus Christ and thus to entertain the hope of heaven. No wonder the last statement on that slide is this. We noted as we started the lesson about Naaman, cleansed from leprosy in the Jordan River. You and I cleansed from sin, not by visiting the Jordan. Aren't you thankful that we don't literally have to make a trek at some point and be baptized in literally the waters of the Jordan River? But as we've learned tonight, what took place at the Jordan was going to be a pattern for that baptism that was going to be the Christian baptism. And it was going to be a meaningful matter wherever and whenever on earth it would occur thereafter. And today you and I are the blessed beneficiaries of the wonders connected to that scriptural baptism. And there is but one, Ephesians 4 verse 5. The next slide, the closing slide, will rehearse three individuals. Naaman, John the Baptist, and finally the Lord Jesus Himself. As we have at least reflected on the Jordan tonight in lesson number two, may I say that lesson three is coming next Sunday night. I hope that you'll be prepared to study yet another fa facet with me about the Jordan River and its implications for us. How sweet, how meaningful, how compelling they're going to be. As we close this lesson tonight, in consideration of the Jordan River, lesson number two, if you need to be cleansed tonight from sin, again, may I say, you don't need to literally go to the Jordan River, but what took place there sets a pattern, a thought, a set of teachings that will be very needful for you and for me tonight. If you have never been baptized into Christ, why do you wait? Do you anticipate a better occasion, a better day? We aren't promised a better day. Proverbs 27.1 says, Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. Today is the day of salvation. 2 Corinthians 6 verse 2. And so tonight, if you have never become a faithful Christian, let it be tonight. But if you have, and if you have known what it was like to walk with the King of kings and Lord of lords, 1 Timothy 6.15, and you knew the hope that He instilled in your heart, but gradually almost imperceptibly slowly, you've allowed that hope to dim. You've allowed that light to become far too concealed. You can come back to your first love tonight. All you need to do is make confession of those errors, repent of them, and we'll be delighted to pray on your behalf to the Father above, who through the Lord will forgive you. If we could help you to do that tonight, it'd be our joy, it'd be our privilege to do it now while together we stand and while we sing.